This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. And today we have a guest from the West Coast, uh, Brian Loring. Brian Loring is a senior broker with Raincatcher. And Raincatcher is a national brokerage firm based in Denver. So even though Brian is in their LA office, he's holding down the West Coast version or location for Raincatcher. Uh, the Brian warmer joined, weather. The warmer weather side. Yes, the sir. The warmer weather. Brian just joined the company a few months ago. But he's been a broker since 2005. He's completed more than $150 million in business sales and commercial transactions during that time. So selling business is actually a second career for Brian. He spent many years in a very different line of work. He's going to tell us more about that and how he got to this point. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bob. I sure appreciate it. Thank you hey, for having me on. Yeah, thanks for taking time out of your afternoon. Sure. You're welcome. Well, give us a quick snapshot of your background and how you got to this point. Sure, no problem. I actually am a two-career person. I uh, completely had nothing to do with transactions, brokerage, or anything to do with real estate or uh, business for many, many years. I started as a uh, journalist. I was a reporter and a television news anchor, worked as a uh, on-air reporter for many years, also worked as a television anchor for a while. Always in California. I've been a lifelong Californian. Worked in Santa Barbara, San Jose, San Francisco, Oakland, Sacramento, all the major cities of California. And uh, for more than 20 years, started as a newspaper reporter, television reporter, eventually got into uh, television production here in the Los Angeles area. I worked for a bunch of syndicated television shows back in the 90s and the 2000s. Worked for NBC, Fox, CBS, numerous uh, television networks on the national level, covered all kinds of national news, won several Emmy Awards, uh, Golden Mike Awards produced a lot of several documentaries, hour-long pieces. I did a lot of production, was mostly a writer and producer for many years. And then I got to my early 40s, or late 30s, early 40s, and I was running ragged, getting on a plane at a moment's notice to go run to a news story that had just happened. And it gets tiring. It, uh, it got to a point where I was just uh, at a point where I needed something else and I wanted to serve uh, in a way that I wasn't serving before. I wanted to feel like I was making a contribution and helping people in a way that I wasn't. And so I completely left the television production realm behind. I had uh, been an executive producer, promoted to a divisional manager of an IT department at CBS and at Fox, where I was doing a lot of IT work, a lot of systems work, a lot of network work. And um, so I just decided to try something else. And that was back in the early 2000s. And so I went into brokerage. I've been a broker since 2005 and done a lot of deals, both in the commercial real estate side, as well as the business brokerage side. For most of my life, I've done kind of both side by side. I started out with several uh, mainstream business or uh, real estate brokerages, uh, CB Richard Ellis, Grubbin Ellis, uh, NAI Capital here in uh, the greater LA area. And just did deals, but at the same time also did business deals and uh, found that uh, after a while, I just got more not only accustomed to and used to doing the business side, but I enjoyed it more. I liked working the business side. I liked working the financials. I liked uh, a lot of the people who were involved. And so I just uh, eventually sold a few gas stations, a few car washes, uh, liquor stores, and so on, and eventually made that transition from commercial real estate into business brokerage full-time many years ago. So I, uh, I have been doing that for a good part of 15 years now. So, You know, I think about your obvious communication skills, you know, from and being in media prior to, to getting into commercial real estate and business brokerage. And, you know, then you look at the business brokerage side of the house. Do you find many business transactions where there's not a real estate component involved? Occasionally. When I was working for my own firm doing digital businesses at eBiz Advisors, there were a lot of deals that were not uh, e-commerce deals, digital deals, online deals, lead generation websites. A lot of those will not have a tangible uh, space. So yeah, there are some of those components. But a lot of times the, uh, the lease and the, uh, the real estate is a big part of the deal. So you have to be ready for either. You know, I think about that just as a value add on bringing to the table when you're talking to a, you know, a prospective seller of a business. And you know, if they're uh, real estate, you know, predominant real estate heavy, you know, in their facility and so on. I would think that that would be a valuable add-on to the discussion. Oh, absolutely. Particularly on the leasing side. There are so many cases where the landlord becomes an obstacle or the discussions with the seller and the landlord become something that you need a little bit of experience with. 
that has helped me tremendously. Having come from commercial leasing background has paid off extremely well. And the clients appreciate it. The sellers appreciate the fact that I can get into a discussion with a landlord or with the management group representing the landlord and feel comfortable, get through the language, get through the legal, and kind of have a, a sense of how to best represent the seller. They do appreciate that. You know, for the business owner that's in a lease arrangement now with their business and considering selling at some point, is there an insight or a piece of advice with respect? Now, let's say their lease terms are coming up and they're thinking we're going to exit the business in the next three to five years. Is there a piece of advice about leasing you might offer? Well, I generally give the advice of not to do anything different based on the perception or the idea that you're going to sell anytime in the next whatever your time frame is. A lot of people will come to us with the idea of selling their business at a time where they're, you know, anywhere from six months to a year out from having to do a lease renewal. And it comes up a lot. You know, it gets them to thinking, well, maybe I don't want to go another three or five year term. Maybe this is the time to start thinking about selling the business. So we do get small businesses that are in that category where they're just saying, hmm, should I or shouldn't I or whatnot? So we usually have a discussion. We'll find out if there is a month-to-month possibility in their tenancy so that when their term comes up, they don't have to roll to another three-year, another two-year, another five-year. When you get to retail spaces, sometimes they want a, another 10-year if it's restaurant space or something like that. You know, I think about the components when a potential buyer is getting ready to look at a business. You know, are there things that, you know, in the lease agreement that may make the, you know, the transaction easier, harder, more expensive, less valuable? and that kind of thing. And so I, you know, I don't have a good feel for that. Yeah. Well, you know, the relationships often have something to do with that. It's not just totally what's on paper. If the seller has been able to maintain a good relationship with that landlord or with the property management or both, it does go a long way to being able to craft something that maybe in a short-term solution would be a short-term solution. There've been many cases where I've, I've recommended that they try to find a short-term solution and just be honest and upfront with the, uh, the landlords. There's a natural kind of uh, hesitation towards a business owner who wants to sell their business to wanting to let the landlord know that they might want to sell. I usually generally like to talk to the landlord at the very beginning of our listing and engagement period. There is a bit of dynamics of people having different opinions on this as to whether it's better to wait till much later in the process, wait till you have a buyer, wait till you're under contract, And I'm of the belief that you should do it in the beginning because I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a landlord at the very beginning of the listing process and said, you know, after the seller has had that discussion with the landlord and at least prime them to let them know that we're going to put it on the market pretty soon as a business sale. And that could have implications for our leasing situation. There's so many times when we'll find out information from the landlord that we didn't know before. And I I can't tell you how many times when I've been told by a seller of a business, oh, I have a great relationship with the landlord. Oh, he'll be fine with it. No problem. And all of a sudden, whammo, uh, we find out about nine different details that we didn't know anything about. And sometimes obstructions to being able to even execute some kind of a a lease assumption. So good to know. I would definitely encourage in the vast majority of cases to talk to your landlord ahead of time because landlords can be deal killers. I have had so many deals killed by landlords who are not agreeable to the new buyer coming in, their financials, their experience, their background, you name it. Uh, Landlords can really throw a a wrench into a deal. And so it's good to massage that process from the very get-go, as far as I'm concerned. Well, you know, I appreciate that insight. You know, in in thinking about it, how did you find Raincatcher and what was your decision process like that caused you to select Raincatcher as a place to business brokerage through? Well, it's mostly because of the CEO, Marlon Carlo. She is a wonderful woman. Uh, she's to, I had met her actually through a couple of webinars that I had first experienced her. And I was just kind of blown away with the amount of passion that she has for small business, how she really, really comes from a, a place of wanting to help people. It's not just transactionally based. It's not just about commissions and fees. She really, really does have a purpose in life about helping people and helping small business. And uh, it was very, very obvious from very first saw, uh, webinar that I saw, uh, eventually sat in on about three or four of her webinars, wound up meeting her at a uh, conference in Dallas, and uh, she just kind of blew me away. So I said, you know, this is a great place. Their model is fantastic. Their people are great. 
it was not a hard fit for me to want to get on the Raincatcher train. It's been a good one, a good train to have. I've had the privilege of having her on as a guest, and and she's a real big fan of the business owner. And you know, I'm obviously a fan of the business owner, and I think about what you guys do to help business owners, you know, take and transition their business to the next generation, for lack of a better term. Sure. You know, I think that's an extremely valuable and misunderstood skill. Oh yeah, and Marley is a super sophisticated business person on her own. She's an accountant. CFO. Uh, she started her own business at Kaizen. She really, really understands the sturm and drang of business ownership and what that feels like and what an owner is going through. Because when you can feel that and have a sense of empathy with someone, it really goes a long way to not only building a good client relationship, but actually just getting the deals. When you can show and portray that you really have a sense of what it means to make payroll and to have to figure out where your next 5000 is coming from because you don't know where it is. That helps. Gives you perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. The sellers really appreciate that. So for you, when you're talking to that business owner that's thinking about selling, you know, what's the most important thing you do to help them get ready and to sell their business? The greatest value we provide is context. Context through information. There's so many business owners when they come to us, they freely admit, I have no idea how to sell a business. I have done this for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. And I know my business, I know my industry, I know everybody in this industry, but I don't have a clue on how to sell my business as a commodity to another person. And so what we do is, uh, I think, is the best thing that we can do is provide context and provide them with an understanding, a sense of dimension. We get a lot of calls, initial calls from people. Let's just use numbers and say, there'll be a $2 million revenue business and they uh, net $200,000 in profits each year. And they'll call us up and they'll want to get information about what the process is like. And they'll ask me, do you think I could get $3 million for my business? And I know absolutely that they're not going to get $3 million for that business. There's no way that they're going to get $3 million for that business. But it's better, instead of me just saying that, it's better for me to have some facts and figures to be able to back that up. So most of the time, when I do a valuation call or when I first meet someone, I like to have some facts about Uh, what previous deals have sold for in the past. So I will talk to that business owner and say, but you know, before our call, I was able to look, we have several services that we can go back and look at previous deals in your industry and in your geography and in your recent timeframe. And I went back and looked at 60 and 70 deals uh, in the past 10 years. And here's what they traded for. And what they traded for is somewhere in this narrow range of uh, two and a half to three times your profits. So if you take that two and a half or three times profits and you're telling me that you think $200,000 in profit, you kind of have a ballpark right there as to what this business probably will sell for. And so if you tell them that from the standpoint of providing dimension, providing information and providing some context, they really appreciate that. It's not just me having an opinion that I'm spewing onto them. They really understand that, hey, this is a marketplace. We are selling a business and you have to take it a little bit as a commodity because we are selling something and that does have a price and I have to put a price on it. So that kind of context is what I think of is the most fun part. You know, I was, we were talking about my history as a reporter and one of the reasons why I like this job so much is because I get to meet people and interview people. And that's what I miss about journalism. There's a lot I don't miss, but that's the part that I miss the most. And I like to interview people and get into their lives and, and understand what they're doing because we get to meet so many incredibly talented people who have done tremendous things with their businesses. And uh, so that information gathering, they also appreciate the fact that uh, I'm curious and uh, I want to know how we can help them and move forward. So, You know, when, when the business owner reaches out to you guys and says, I'm considering to selling my business, you know, if you were going to characterize the first call with that business owner, what are the types of information or questions that you ask that potential business owner? Well, I want to get a little bit better sense of their motivation. What's driving them to call us? What's driving them to ultimately want to figure out what their business is worth? What they think is going to happen once they do sell? What's going to happen with their own families, their own day in and day out workspace, their own employees? A lot of people, they don't have a sense of that. It's not fleshed out. They just know that they're tired of what they're doing. They've been doing it for 15 or 30 years and they just want something else, but they don't really have a sense of context. They don't know what it's going to look like. So we try to help them with that and we try to give them a better understanding of that. We have a couple of proprietary tools at Raincatcher that are fantastic. 
One is one that is called a sellability assessment we, where we're able to put numbers and put scores on their business. But another one that we have that is a credibly valuable tool is called the pre-score assessment. And that one is relatively new uh, that we just rolled out within the last few months is a fantastic tool that doesn't necessarily deal with the business. It deals with the owner and it deals with the motivation of the owner and the background and the, the goals of the owner. And I have found that to be as equally or more phenomenal in really understanding and getting into the meat of what's driving this deal. And those questions relate to what's going to happen with their employees when the deal is done. And it's a wonderful tool. It takes only 10 minutes to do online, but it really provides a tremendous amount of insight as to uh, how we can proceed. So, you know, I think about, you know, just some of the statistics behind that. I think there was a statistic that said about 75% of business owners within the first 12 months of selling their business, you know, have remorse. And I think that's that group of people that haven't really planned for step three after post-sale. What am I going to do with myself? Yeah. That is an amazing statistic. I don't doubt it. We try to work real hard to not contribute to that 75%. Well, I think uh, that pre-score thing that you're talking about, yeah, that would absolutely contribute to that not happening. Yeah. It's because that tool asks a lot of questions that don't really come up in uh, the course of a regular conversation, and it really gets into what's in their mind. And we've had people who took this pre-score assessment and came back to us and said, hmm, maybe selling is not exactly what I want to do. And it gets them thinking in a way that uh, is incredibly valuable, I think. Uh, Well, you know, I think about it as you guys are serving the business community and, you know, in conversations with Marla, you know, she says, we want to serve the business owner and do what's best for them. And, you know, and I think that permeates your organization. And, you know, I think it's really important for the business owner. You go, you know, like on Monday morning, when you don't have to go to work on Monday morning, what's your plan? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? And if you're a pillar of the community and you don't own the business anymore, what's your identity? And there's yeah. a lot of things. Yeah. I had just a sit down coffee last week with a husband and wife client who have a terrific manufacturing business here in the Los Angeles area. And um, she started out our conversation by saying, you know, I have talked to five people in the last couple of weeks about the idea of selling the business. And every single one of them came back to me and said that they were disappointed in how it came out and they didn't like the results. And I said, wow, that's interesting. In my experience, that is not the case. I have to just presume from my experience that it's relatively normal. The deals that I've done, if I went back to, if I made a bunch of calls right now and went back to them, the majority of the ones that I have dealt with have been generally happy by the time they've closed the deal and they've moved on. Well, you know, Uh, I I think that speaks to your process. You know, I think so. And, you know, and in talking with folks within your organization, I think it's really clear that you guys are, are very interested in the business owner, not just the transaction. Mm-hmm. And as you talk to these folks, so here's some things to consider. You know, there's pre-sale, there's the going through the sale period, then there's the post-sale, you know, going to support your lifestyle. What are you going to do? What does your family think? What do your kids think? You know, what's your spouse think? And I think all of those things are extremely valuable as Absolutely. a business owner is trying to frame the next step. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. A lot of the problem areas come with deals where there are obligations on the part of the seller to stay with the business for the long term. There's a, most deals will have some element of an earnout, a carve out, a seller carry note, a uh, employment contract, consulting agreement, some kind of function where the seller who thought that he was just going to sell a business and within a span of a short transition be done with it. A lot of times it doesn't work out that way. A lot of times they're in it a lot longer than they thought. And sometimes they're not getting all the money up front that they thought. One of the common misperceptions out there is that most people think that they're going to get an all-cash deal. And so one of the things we do in our initial call is to let them know that the chances are pretty good that you're not going to get all cash up front, especially as the businesses get larger. There, uh, Most people want to use leverage. Even the guy who has 50 or $100 million in the bank, he wants to use leverage. And whatever he can afford, he's still going to be able to want to use some element of uh, debt or equity financing in order to get the deal done and not have to come out of pocket 100%. Most people don't really quite get that. They're selling a business for 500000 or 250000 or $2 million or whatever that number is. And they, for some reason, think that it's going to be an all-cash buyer who is going to walk in and want uh, 30 days worth of consulting and I'm out the door completely. Eh, it doesn't work that way very often. Well, you know, I, I can see, you know, typically I think for the business owner, 
they've transacted real estate before, which is kind of the, you know, you don't want them sticking around the house after you buy it. But I think from a lot of sellers, don't view the transaction from the buyer's eyes. Absolutely. And that is, you've hit the nail on the head. That's one of the things we try to imbue upon somebody when they begin this process as the seller of a business. And that is to get your mind starting to think and recycle and return the the access around and start thinking like a buyer. And would you buy your own business? Uh, What would be the terms of that? What does that look like for you? What would be the risk points? It's uh, a lot of it is about risk, assessing risk, making sure that the risk is mitigated, making sure that you're letting the buyer have as much information and quality information as they possibly can. Because when somebody is assessing risk, they have doubt, that doubt leads to walking away. You have to eliminate doubt after doubt after doubt after worry to get to a point where they're comfortable because otherwise the deal won't happen. And so what we try to do is we take every step of the way, we try to make sure that people are having their doubts alleviated as a buyer in order to warm them up to the seller's process that they need to be able to have a meeting of the minds in the middle and get a deal done. You know, we started to touch on that. Let's dig into some of the challenges you know, that you guys face when you're trying to get the businesses sold. And I'm sure from many of the owners, you know, there's a, a checkered experience where some business owners have a better experience when they sell their business and some don't have such a good experience when they sell their business due to some of the behavior yeah. of some of the people in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a lot of mistakes that are made that we brokers and intermediaries try not to replicate. The failure rate in this business is very high. It's unfortunate. But most people don't realize that state associations track the success and failure rate of these listings as they come and go. And uh, here in California, the California Association of Business Brokers comes out with a a number usually on a regular basis. And the failure rate can be anywhere from 70 to 75% of businesses that hit the market don't sell. I see different numbers fluctuate back and forth, but the vast majority there are far more deals that don't sell than do sell. And I've seen that number go anywhere from 60% up to 80% of failure rate. So that is a lot of disappointment for people who are out there who want to sell their business. And so what we try to do is we try to mitigate the possibility that it will happen. We've actually done very, very well in turning that coin upside down because the vast majority of our businesses do sell. And we're super selective about who we're able to choose as a client and to work with them and to nurture the listing along and nurture the engagement along so that we will succeed because we don't want to have somebody spend six months or a year in this process and do a lot of the work and come away with nothing. So we don't want that to be a failure rate. There's a bunch of mistakes that are very common that I see. One is that business owners wait too long to sell their business. It's a very common uh, natural tendency of human nature to you know, have a business that is, they've had for 10 years or 15 years, and all of a sudden revenues go down one year, and then they go down a little more the next year, and down a little more the next year. And pretty soon you have a pretty consistent downward trend, and that's when they start thinking about selling because they just have lost the passion, they've lost pieces of business, they've lost whatever, and that's the wrong time to sell. That is unfortunately when a lot of people come to us. And so uh, we're always looking for business owners who are ahead of that curve and are actually selling at least when they're flat, but hopefully when they're on an upward trend. Mm -hmm. And that upward trend is what a lot of buyers are looking for, because at the end of the day, the buyer is interested in the past and they want to know about the present, but ultimately what they're buying is the future. Mm -hmm. And they want to know what's going to happen in the future, whether they can scale this, whether it's really uh, a scalable business or not. And so when they're looking at that, that is a lot of what they're looking at, the future. The other big mistake that most owners make is overpricing. It's probably the number one reason why a a listing that goes to the market doesn't sell. And that is that it's simply overpriced. That is where we come in. We have to make a really good effort to let them have realistic information and realistic expectations about what their business really can sell for. It's very easy for us. And there's a lot of business brokers out there who do this because they want to get a lot of listings and they think that listings beget listings and the more listings they have, the more money they'll make. So they go to a client and they will give them all kinds of pie in the sky that is not reasonable. And a business that is going to sell for $500,000 will, you know, some business brokers will tell them it's going to sell for a million or a million and a half or something that's completely unreasonable uh, just in order to get that listing. And we don't do that. We're never going to do that. 
we want to give real world, honest information so that the business owner can make a, an informed decision about their future. And if the market doesn't support the price that we think it, it will go for, then we'll tell them that. And it does happen all the time. We routinely have to deal with owners who don't want to go forward either with us or with anybody because the business just is not in the position where they were hoping were hoping to get to uh, in a sale price. Well, you know, I think there's value in even in that part. Let's say you're back to the business owner, you know, and he says, I think it's, you know, you tell him, says the market suggests your business is worth a half a million bucks. And you go, and you wanted to sell it for $2 million. And he goes, so it gives him an idea. says, if you want that type of price, here's the path you're going to have mm-hmm. to take. Exactly. You're going to have yeah. to grow these things this way and start setting your company up to get that price. And here's what the market will demand for you to get that kind of pricing. Yeah. This is one thing that Marl always talks about. Marl always talks about that the business is their baby. It is their baby. Mm-hmm. It is, it's literally right here. And there isn't an <laughs> ugly baby out there, is there? No, there is no ugly baby out there. That's right. And it's true. And uh, you tend to think of, you know, you look on your financials and you say, hey, this is a fantastic business and I should get X dollars for it. And I don't see why anybody shouldn't pay that. And so that's why our role is to provide context and provide context through information so that they understand that if I tell them, you know, I've just looked at 80 listings in your industry, in your general geography, and there isn't one deal out of 80 that I can point to that is the same price as you think you should get. So, you know, that's not me telling them that. That's the market information telling them that. And that's important. You know, know, I I think, you know, all that we've talked about the qualities of your company and you guys have recently been recognized by Inc. Magazine as well. So it's not just us talking about the company. That's right. We're ahead of Goldman Sachs. Forget who else (laughs) we were ahead of, but yeah, we rank number one. So uh, that's not an accident. We actually are a, a fantastic company not only in how we find clients, but how we market the listings and to get buyers to our clients. It's a fantastic company. As you mentioned, I just joined a few months ago. I haven't even been here a year, but I've been at numerous other business brokerages. And this one is uh, clearly so much better at finding quality buyers out there who are qualified and who are targeted, who've been vetted already and are ready to go. And so we kind of take the attitude that we're redefining business brokerage we tend not to think of ourselves as an M&A firm, which is you know an investment bank doing $200 million deals because we don't do $500 million deals. We do business brokerage deals that are smaller than that. Generally, our deals are anywhere from a million dollars to $20 million. That's generally the, the ballpark we're in. We do get higher than that on occasion. But at the end of the day, we're trying to make sure that the business owner is teed up and ready to go. They have to be prepared. They have to have their financials in order. They have to have reconciliations that make sense. The paperwork is an extremely, the accounting and bookkeeping is an extremely important part of the process. So we help them to get ready. And that preparation can take a little while. So, uh, you know, and, and for, you know, for one of the things that we haven't talked about for the business owner that's going, you know, I'm considering selling my business. What should they expect as far as a range of fees to liquidate a business or not liquidate, but to sell a business? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question. There are a variety of different fee structures out there. The vast majority of business brokers that you find out there, I would guess probably 80, 90% are probably going to charge a success fee equal to a 10% of the total consideration of the sale of the business. 10% is a very common, the most common number that is used as a success fee at the end. So you're not paying that fee until the business sells and you're getting through a closing in an escrow with either an attorney's office or an escrow company and the deal is done, and there is proceeds coming from the buyer. There are other business brokerages that will go up to 12.5%. I've worked for them. 15% is also not that uncommon, but 10% is typical. By the time you get below 10%, and I should preface this by saying, as deals get larger, that number does tend to come down. We're not going to charge 10% on a $30 million or $50 million deal. But as the number gets larger, and you will find houses that charge 8% or 6% or something like that, but those tend to be real estate agents who are trying to do business deals or accountants or other intermediaries who are really not professional. I tend to tell people that if somebody wants to charge less than that, be careful because maybe they're not in the business brokerage business. And looking at the business owners and the industries that you guys represent, do you specialize or... 
do you guys cover multiple industries? Multiple industries. We're uh, we're industry agnostic, but we do tend to see, um, you know, there's probably anywhere from five to 10 industries that we see more of than others. We do a lot of manufacturing. We'll do a lot of do e-commerce and digital businesses. We do property management companies, vacation rental companies. We will do a lot of service businesses. So we're all industries. We don't have any particular specialization. That said, because of my background, before I came to Raincatcher, I do tend to do a lot of uh, digital and tech-based businesses. Because of my IT background and my networking background, I do tend to do more uh, tech, data, uh, and IT-type related businesses than others. And other staff members do have a little bit of a specialization within their own backgrounds. But that said, it doesn't terribly affect what we do. We are uh, industry agnostic and we cover everybody. Well, you know, I think about from the, the folks that are in Raincatcher, you guys have covered so many different industries where you may specialize in IT and somebody else may specialize in one other area just from their background. That's a wealth of people to go talk to within your firm to get perspective and maybe sure. fine-tuned. Sure. And that is very often how we will apportion clients to different specialties and to different backgrounds because it makes sense. So ultimately, at the end of the day, we're trying to help the client in any way we can. And a lot of times we help them by doing something that is completely antithetical to what is in our own best interests. Uh, I mean, I just had three calls today where I was referring people out that are not going to make Raincatcher a dime, but we're trying to provide service and Mm -hmm. we're trying to do the best thing that we can to get those people the information and the the service that they need to move on and and meet their goals. You know, for that business owner that's struggling, he says, you know, know, my brother-in-law sold his business for X and the neighbor down the street sold his business for Y. And go so, and typically they don't have any idea, no. you know, what the yeah. true value of their business. So, yeah. what might they do, or what can they do to try to get an idea so they're not disappointed with an unrealistic expectation? Well, I mean, they certainly can call us or call someone like us to begin with. That's not uncommon. If you just totally ballpark treetop numbers, and that is that the majority of businesses that sell for that are going to sell for say under a million to two million dollars. The vast majority of them are going to be somewhere as a sale price, going to achieve a price somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three times their net profit. We use a seller's discretionary earnings number as a net profit number. A lot of people call it cash flow. A lot of people call it profit. But uh, the revenues are important. But at the end of the day, the deals are done on a basis of a multiple of earnings. And that multiple of earnings uses a multiplier against their, their net income. And so that earnings number, that income number, is what you can multiply generally by two or three times for the vast majority of businesses that are small. And there's a lot of things that drive it above three or below two. I have sold businesses that sold for 0.5, not even one times profit. And I've sold other businesses that were 12 times. So those are anomalies. Those are are not typical. If I look back on my career, I would say the vast majority, probably 80 to 90% sold somewhere in that range of two to three times net income. And thinking about it, you know, from the business owner's perspective, it's really hard for that business owner to appreciate the risk that the buyer's taking on. What are the types of risks when you're talking to the buyers are they considering when they're looking at a business? Well, as the buyer, there's so many risks involved for the buyer. They have to place capital. They have to get employees and people in place. They have a tremendous amount of risks that uh, a lot of sellers don't necessarily give enough attention to and enough understanding to. There's a concentration risk. There's supplier risks. There's financing risk. There's key man risk. Key man risk is one of the biggest that we deal with. And that is when key man risk is a term that we use for the key man being the owner or owner and wife or owner and husband or something like that. If they're now gone from the business, what's going to happen to the business? is that business really the guy who's leaving? And that key man risk is a huge part of most business deals we have because even if you have some degree of a management structure, even if you're a 15-employee company or a 30-employee company, that owner has built that business and he's probably still a, a rather significant component to the, the sales cycle, the marketing cycle. And so they have to make a very, very accurate judgment as to how important his disappearance is going to be when that business gets sold. So that goes into the multiple of earnings. That goes into the multiplier. 
And um, I haven't touched on uh, one of the tools that we use, the sellability assessment that I mentioned. The eight key drivers of value that are the main component of that score that we put together, these kind of factors are part of what goes into that equation. You can have two businesses with the exact same numbers. They, two businesses that are making $5 million in revenue and 500000 in net profit, and they can be in the same industry in the same location. And yet those two businesses can have very different value. And that goes to what the eight key drivers of value gets to and how the internal operating mechanism of the business is able to, uh, to be so different for those two businesses. You know, do you think in the business owners that you've worked with and others, do you think they're really aware of those eight key drivers? Some are. Yeah. They understand key man risk. They all understand that if they leave the business, that that's going to have an impact. They're very familiar with that. They're not as familiar with some of the other things. A lot of times they're not that familiar with the fact that uh, the trend line is such a huge part of the sale process and the desirability of a business. They're not aware of that at all, that if you have flat earnings and flat revenue, it's very different from a very, very escalating high growth company and uh, consequently a downtrending company, they don't understand that it has a very, very negative impact and it takes that multiplier way down. And there's a lot of other components to it. You know, the eight key drivers is a very, very valuable tool that ultimately we wind up giving a score to the Mm -hmm. business and they can really understand in each of those categories what that score is and how to try to improve it. Yeah, they can check the gaps. Yeah. We've talked selling, 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 and selling so far. You know, and for a business owner, you guys have a fairly good relationship with a quantity of buyers that are out in the marketplace. Let's talk about the buyers that you guys, you know, could show a business to and how that works. Yeah. Well, it is fantastic. That's one of the reasons why I came to Raincatcher, to have a, uh, a curated pool of national buyers on a nationwide basis that is very targeted and very specific. We key our buyer pool to uh, geography, to size to uh, industry, all the way down to many different factors so that when we have a particular seller that has come to us and wants to sell his business or her business, that we can go right to that group right there who have said in the past that this is what they're looking for. And we have found that there are many, many instances where the buyer has not come from putting it on a website or Mm -hmm. any other ways. They've actually come from within our system. I think the majority of our deals actually come from people who are already in our system. And so that is a very, very valuable tool. Well, you know, I, I think about the seller, you know, like if, it, you know, in the real estate world, you know, you kind of get a listing, goes out on MLS and, and there you go. And I'm sure there's business listing services, but to develop and have an inventory of specific buyers in specific niches is incredibly valuable for the person looking to sell a business. Yeah. It also helps us to, to allay some of the fears that the buyers have. We put all buyers in two different pools, uh, strategic buyers versus financial buyers. And the financial buyers are typically uh, private equity groups, family offices, people who are looking for the financial details of a good investment. Those are very different from strategic buyers. Uh, strategic buyers, somebody who's already in the industry, already in that geography, and may want to get into that geography. Maybe there's a market that they want to get into that they're not in right now. Maybe there's a product line or a brand that they would like to inherit that they don't have right now. Uh, The strategic buyer typically is somebody we highly desire because they tend to pay a little bit higher price to the seller. They also tend to uh, have a little bit more determination to get a deal done. Uh, We find that a strategic buyer will push harder than a financial buyer. And so what we do at Raincatcher, and one of the things we're really good at, is really developing a strategic strategy to try to find those buyers out there who really are the best fit for this business. Because we do represent a lot of businesses that have a a very specific niche. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we go into a listing knowing that there's probably less than 50 buyers out there for this business. There are cases for that, uh, where if you take away all the financial buyers and you just look at the strategics alone, there's just not very many. And this happens a lot in very niche manufacturing and very niche software a bunch of different industries where you just don't have that many strategics who would look at this business opportunity as a strap-on or as some other form of investment for them. You know, as as you think about exposing, you know, the seller and the buyer, 
you know, and so as you're representing that seller, you know, what are the types of things or factors that you might tell the seller they need to focus on that would take in and be like the lever to either drive the value of their company up or drive the value of their company down? Hmm. Um, Well, there's several. One is preparation. There is no better way to make your business more sellable than to be prepared and to be positioned properly. And so one of the things we do with them is we work through their financials. We work through their operating. We prepare a uh, confidential information memorandum that explains the story, the history. Ultimately, storytelling is a part of the business of getting your business sold. And, you know, people respond to a story. Uh, People respond to a, a through line of a plot. And so what we have to try to do is portray that story in a way that is appealing to the buyers and makes sense and eliminates a lot of the, uh, the doubts that they may have. And um, so that preparation is one of the things that is a big component in, in getting ready. And there are businesses that we work with for you know, months and sometimes years to be able to get ready because they're not ready when they come to us. You know, I've read recently that there's a large interest in businesses that have recurring revenue stream, which sounds somewhat redundant to say, but I, I understand maybe why. So when you talk about your recurring revenue, you know, contracts and that kind of thing, what type of advice do you talk to the seller of their business with respect to those items? Recurring revenue is one of the hot buttons for buyers. They love recurring revenue, whether it's subscription-based, monthly-based revenues, or regular contract revenues that are contractually obligated. Those kind of recurring revenues are uh, one of the first things that a lot of buyers will ask us about. And so one of the things we try to do is to, when we begin with a a seller, to figure out if there is any kind of one-time revenue sources or any other components of their business that maybe could be transferred into some form of a recurring or subscription revenue model. And sometimes it can be. There are businesses that are conducive to that, some that are not. A lot of retail is not but there are other ways that some retail is. So we try to see if there's a way to do that and a way to build their revenues and build their, uh, their sellability that way. So, you know, it's in- interesting. I was at a car wash the other day. It says, you want a car wash or do you want to take in your, your monthly yep. pass? And you kind of go, yep. well, there it is right there. Good example. Yeah. yeah. Car washes you know, are a great example. Yeah. If you're a business owner and you look at your length of contracts with your recurring revenue stream, and let's say that all of them have an average length of time of six months or whatever. If you're that business owner and they all came due in June and you knew you were going to sell at some point down the road, would you start trying to attack that single renewal or extend the length of that contract to help your company? I would continue to try to keep that business in-house and keep it going as though the business wasn't sold or wasn't going to sell. Because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you don't know if you're going to sell and you certainly don't want to do anything that's going to jeopardize your revenue stream. I would continue to fight as hard as I could to keep that going. Because at the end of the day, if you find a good buyer, they're going to want that business already in place anyway. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of downside to halting business. One of the things we do find is that a lot of businesses and owners kind of take their foot off the gas Mm -hmm. uh, once we begin the sale process. They figure, well, we're going to get sold pretty soon, so I I won't renew this contract or uh, maybe I'll let this employee go or maybe I'll t- just not hire those two guys that I was thinking about or something. Yikes. Yeah, that's a bad strategy. Uh, it's one of the mistakes that a lot of sellers make. They really, really think that this business is going to sell and they're not going to be in it the next three months or six months or a year or something. And that is the wrong attitude to take because that is when you need to be full throttle on the gas because the buyer is going to see how the business is operating. And if there's any sense that there's something diminishing rather than expanding, they're not going to like that. So you really, really have to be very mindful of the fact that you need to be pushing, pushing, pushing to make sure that everything is operating as it can be. You know, it's, it's interesting. You know, I was, I was looking today and there, there was somebody talking about a moat business. And if you don't have any idea, moat business, moat, <laughs> oh, moat, <laughs> boat. Okay. moat, M-O-A-T, moat, you know, barrier to entry business. And you think about, for some of the business valuation, some of the companies you run across, how important is it to a potential buyer that it's hard to replicate that business model or there's a barrier to entry? Good question. It, it can be a substantial factor. It's the buy versus, uh, what is it? Buy, ver- or buy versus build strategy. Mm-hmm. And when you do have a strong barrier to entry where you have contracts in place that just couldn't get replaced otherwise, when you have, uh, a lot of it has to do with marketing. 
when you have uh, social media, you have millions of followers in social media, you have uh, marketing streams that are in place. Very, very valuable. A lot of businesses, uh, one of the things I learned early on is that probably nine out of 10 sellers, when they ask you, when you ask them, I should say, how could you improve your business? What would a new guy come in to look at your business? How would they improve it? And I would say 99 out of 100 business owners tell me marketing. And because they know their core business, they don't know how to do the marketing of today. And so marketing becomes the kind of the be-all, end-all means by which sales and marketing in general. A lot of companies are just not very good at their sales process and their marketing process. So that barrier to entry question that you had, though, is very, very significant because if somebody can build it, uh, you find this in e-commerce, for instance. A lot of e-commerce businesses and a lot of and buyers of e-commerce, a lot of them say, hey, I'll just start it on my own. I don't need this. You find it in trades, contractors, medical offices. If they have the skills, if they have the licensing, if they have the background, why are they going to go buy someone else's business if they could just start it on their own? And so that does become a, a significant factor. You know, as you look back over your career in selling businesses, you know, if there was a handful of mistakes that you typically see the business owner make when they're wanting to sell, what would those be? A couple. One is tax consequences. A lot of sellers don't really grasp that if they sell their business and they put a lot of money in their pocket, that Uncle Sam wants some of that. And uh, they, I have to spend a lot of time in really urging them to consult with their accountant or their wealth manager or financial planner or whoever can really give them context about their tax consequences. I've had several deals when I was first in this business. I had several deals that blew up because we got into escrow and we were within a week of closing. And I was giving, at the time, I should have given them better advice to be able to not have this happen so late in the process. But they didn't realize that how much money was going to be going to Uncle Sam at the end of the day. And deals blew up because of it. And so it's very important for them to understand the difference between ordinary income tax liabilities versus uh, long-term or short-term capital gains versus all kinds of different things that can happen when you start looking at it. Uh, most people don't have any idea what depreciation recapture is, which is a nasty little thing that you have to sometimes introduce to people to let them know what that means. And so the tax consequences are something that is very, very commonly not understood by small business owners. So we, we try to walk them through that a little bit. And also, one of the things I think they the mistake of is not understanding their own motivations. A lot of people just are sick and tired of the job. They're sick and tired of management hassles. They're sick and tired of the just the day in, day out. And so, well, you can't give two weeks notice, so you sell. You want to okay. sell. But they don't really understand what are the, the deeper drivers of that motivation. And so we try to work with them to really understand that and try to give them a little bit more context about how they might be able to solve that problem, about maybe they can you know, assign tasks differently, maybe get an assistant, maybe get a manager in place, put processes in place that they don't have right now. It involves not selling the business, but actually just rearranging their operation so that they don't have to do what they don't like to do. That's a very common thing. So a lot of that goes into the whole idea of just kind of understanding what you want out of this because sometimes they don't. And so we kind of become a sounding board. One of the things that we really are is not only a sounding board, but we're kind of like the glue that holds the deal together. Even when you have a buyer and even when you're under contract and in escrow, oh, there's so many deal details that come up that uh, very easily can derail the whole process. And sometimes it's very small, very insignificant. And yet without an intermediary or somebody who's staying calm, not letting any of the shouting get to them, and just getting through the process and trying to find a common ground, it can make all the difference between keeping a deal together and not keeping a deal together. Yeah, I think about that. Your baby's not quite as pretty as you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and he's got kind of a weird lip. I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the business owner is all offended at that point, for sure. Yeah. yeah. No, we don't, we don't get into that. <laughs> you know, as you look back over, over all the businesses you've worked with, you know, and as you go through the process, you know, maybe there's a, a technique or a trick that you've learned along the way that helps the business owners sell their business. Do you have a couple of those in mind? Patience. It's not a trick. A lot of patience. We've had a couple cases. Uh, I'll give you one trick that I've done. I've had over the course of years of doing this, I've had several listings that were just not getting much activity. 
and not that many buyer calls on it, not much interest, either because it, the numbers weren't good or the location wasn't good or something. Uh, one trick we've used, and I've actually had success with it, is to take that listing and raise the prices on it substantially, which you would think would be completely counterintuitive. I was actually able to sell a, uh, a Mexican restaurant here in the LA area in my early days. and We couldn't get any activity for $200,000. And we, were, we had several buyers who were coming forward and they, they were interested, but it just wasn't happening. And so a combination of raising the price and then putting a bid deadline on it, where we had a bid process where there was a time urgency involved. And we doubled the price. I took it from $200,000 to $400,000. <laughs> And it's sold. It's sold. And there is a lot to be said, putting a sense of urgency into it. And that's what we do at Raincatcher. We do have bid deadlines for a lot of our deals mm -hmm. to make sure that the bidding goes from a certain time to a certain time and there's a deadline. And when buyers know that, they do respond to that. And sometimes if a listing is just out there and it's out there forever and there's not really any time frame to it, that sense of urgency can have a big help, uh, put a big help into the uh, process of getting sold. You know, Brian, as we come to a close here, because, you know, I know that you have a few other things to do today rather than sure. just visit, visit with me, you know, <laughs> no. yeah, don't say, you know, um, <laughs> some of the best advice you think that you've received through the years about hmm. selling business. One of my very first brokerage managers was a wonderful guy named Pat Hall in uh, commercial real estate. And he told me, I think it was basically like the first week I was in commercial real estate. He said, just be ready. All deals will die three times before they live. And it's kind of true. Most deals reach a point and then die, and then reach a point and then die, uh, or have some kind of death. Maybe it's not a total death, but his point, his point has been very well taken. It's been proven to be quite accurate that there are a lot of cases where a deal just has stopped, there's something in the way, and then it gets going again. Mm -hmm. And so it requires a lot of patience, but also understanding of that. And it served me very well, actually. And another good one is uh, a gentleman who I used to work with in CBS television who said, stop thinking that it's easier for everybody else. It's not easier for everybody else. Just do the work, pound, get through it, and work with your client and work with your people to have a purpose and to make that happen for people. And that's one of the best parts of this job is to be able to serve others and to be able to accomplish something that helps them. And that's why I got into this business, to be able to provide service to people who need it. We provide a very valuable service. These business owners, they do not know how to sell their business. And so when we can help them and achieve that and make them happy and satisfied to move on to a new course in their lives, that's a great place to be. It's a good service to be able to provide. You know, it's always good to help. You know, and Brian, speaking of which, we didn't talk about how people can find you on social media. How do they find you? Okay. Well, uh, I would point you to Raincatcher. We have uh, raincatcher.com is uh, probably the best place to go. We have uh, individual links there that can get you the individual broker's social media. And that's probably the best way to go. Well, super. Well, Brian, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you sharing uh, your story and the wisdom. I appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. And, and all the, the help that you've been providing the business owners and, and for the listeners and business owners that you know, are going like, I don't know whether I'm going to or want to or whatever, I would encourage you to reach out to Brian and at least have a conversation if it's on your mind to sell at some point in the future. So, well, Brian, I, pre I appreciate you taking the time. This is very helpful and uh, I appreciate you doing that. Thank you. Super, Brian. Hey, make it a great rest of your day, huh? Thank you. You bet.